I think, though, that as soon as possible, we will return to jury trials, which, of course, are such a mainstay of our whole legal system that we have to return to that. I mean, it's, it's constitutional. We've got to have jury trials and we will have jury trials and we will bump into people in the hallways and hopefully we'll be able to shake hands and do all that sort of thing. I know a number of district court judges. I don't do a lot in the district court these days, but I know the district court has continued to function pretty well through the pandemic until very recently when a large number of the judges and staff have actually come down with Omicron, I understand. They have. But hats off to them because they have continued to function some remote, but for the most part, because so many litigants in the district courts don't have access to things like Zoom and WebEx, they've had to keep their doors open and they've done it and really deserve a lot of credit for doing that. Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, we are broadcasting courtesy of Howard County Community College Dragon Digital Radio in Columbia, Maryland, and also in conjunction with Maryland State Bar Association, which has provided us one of its great eminences, the president of the Maryland State Bar Association, Natalie McSherry. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. You do have a unique stature in Maryland legal history. I know you're an otherwise modest soul, but your great-grandfather was the founding president of the Maryland State Bar Association 125, 126 years ago. Yes, he was, in fact. Quite an extraordinary turn of events to have his great-granddaughter some years later in charge of this process. You have multiple generations of lawyers in your family. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, let me work my way backwards. My father was a lawyer in Frederick, which is where I grew up. He fashioned himself as a simple country lawyer, which he really did believe he was. He raised 12 of us out there in Frederick, believing that. We used to do everything for him from putting pocket parts in reporters to searching titles at the courthouse. But it was an experience growing up with him because his office was in the house. So we really did live his practice day to day. His father was also an attorney who practiced in that same office in Frederick. My great-grandfather, the one we called the judge that you just referred to, who was, in fact, chief judge of the Court of Appeals for a while in Maryland at the turn of the other century from the 1800s to the 1900s. I remember his those name, days. Yeah, I do, too, distinctly. Um, <laughs> he was the chief judge of the Court of Appeals when he was the first president of the Maryland State Bar Association. And he did have, you know, as you know, the distinction in hindsight, I guess you could call it, of authoring an opinion in the early 1900s with regard to a woman named Etta Maddox, who had applied for admission to practice in Maryland. And my great-grandfather authored the opinion that denied her that permission that year. He went out of his way, I got to say, in the opinion to say he did not mean to take anything away from the laudatory ambition of women to practice law, but he felt constrained by the language of the legislature and told Edematics essentially if she wanted a different outcome, she would have to go back to the legislature. She did, and she prevailed. And I will say that now there are three of his great-granddaughters admitted to practice in Maryland. So life does change. His father was also an attorney, but known more for his writing. He wrote a history of Maryland back in the day. He was the first McSherry to live in Frederick. So, you know, there have been like five or six generations of us now in Frederick. But even before him, the McSherry lawyers went back a few more generations in Pennsylvania. One of them was actually in the Continental Congress. So go figure. Extraordinary. And, and your yeah. children in turn, at least one has become a lawyer, correct? 
My middle child is a, is a lawyer. He works in the criminal appeals division at the attorney general's office and loves it. And the University of Maryland Law School has been the beneficiary of the scholarship of the McSherry clan. Well, the judge got an honorary degree from the University right. of Maryland School of Law, but my grandfather, father, and my son and I all went to school there. Yeah. You got to be very proud of that institution. We are very proud of it. And it's a fantastic, as you know, it's a fantastic institution these days. It's one of the preeminent law schools in the country when it comes to clinical programs, partly because of what Maryland has, I think, if not truly uniquely, it's a one of a very few that has what they call the Cardin requirement for graduation, which requires that every student take a clinical program where they will serve the underprivileged or the underrepresented so that not only do they get some practical skills by working in a clinic, but they're also serving underserved communities. And I think that's a fantastic requirement as part of the graduation from that law school. You know, my alma mater, the University of North Carolina, does not have a similar such requirement, but would really benefit from it to a tremendous degree. I think both the community and the students and the school itself benefit from that. Yeah. One of the other extraordinary things about the University of Maryland Law School is its proximity to Edgar Allan Poe's grave. <laughs> I know this is a bit of an odd digression, but I was up at the University of Maryland Dental School recently, and I, I meandered over to the law school, which I do periodically, and, and visited Poe's grave. It's quite a historical graveyard attached to it. It's amazing. And of course, it's attached to the Westminster Church, which is part of the University of Maryland Law School campus, if you will, at right. this point in time, and they use it for lots of functions. So right over Edgar Allan Poe's grave, they have all sorts of law school functions nowadays. It's I nice have school. wandered out of those events and had a cocktail in proximity <laughs> to Mr. Poe's grave. I think he would approve. I think he would too. You know, there's the, uh, and I don't know all the details of it, but there is this tradition that every year on Halloween, there is this bottle of spirits that appears on his grave. No one admits to knowing how or by whom, but it's there. I think there was also something about a rose or something appearing on his yeah. birthday or something as well. Something and like then, yeah, and then at a certain point it stopped and everybody was sort of sad. Yeah. One of the amazing things about Maryland is it is, by United States standards, an old line state with old history and an extraordinary tradition. And your family demonstrates it as well as any I can think of. One of the things I, in getting ready, I kind of read up about my guests a little bit. And I was looking at the State Bar Association newsletter, and in it, and I understand you gave a speech to this effect, it discusses what they were trying to get at in 1896 when they started the Bar Association. And I just was going to quickly read it for our audience and chat with you a little bit about whether those goals are in harmony with what we're trying to accomplish these days. It says, to advance the science of jurisprudence, to promote reform of the law, to facilitate the administration of justice to uphold the standard of integrity, honor, and courtesy in the legal profession, to encourage legal education, and to cultivate a spirit of cordiality and brotherhood among the members of the bar. And it sounds like an awful lot like what all the bar associations I'm affiliated with are striving to do in the 21st century. Yeah, and as you mentioned, a year ago, when I became president, I got to give an inaugural address to the entire association which unfortunately we had to do virtually last June because we were not able to meet in person. But I, I referred to those words. I read those very same words as part of my address and pointed out how applicable they are today, not just to what we as lawyers aspire to do, but what the Maryland State Bar Association actually does do 
on a day-to-day basis, not all of them every day, obviously, but those same principles are what guide us today. I mean, as you probably know, we have any number of activities where we are working with the judiciary to try to not only make the administration of justice more efficient, but make it more fair, make it more open, make it more accessible. Access to justice has been, for a couple of years now, a major thrust of the Maryland State Bar Association. We even brought in-house the Access to Justice Commission, which for a while was an arm of the judiciary. And then the judiciary decided not to sponsor it anymore, became an independent commission for a while. And then we thought it was so fitting to our whole reason for being that it's now an arm, if you will, of the Maryland State Bar Association. So we're, we're really proud of that. Over the years, the Maryland State Bar Association has also created two of the now statewide efforts with um, pro bono, one being the Maryland Volunteer Lawyer Service, which was created by the bar, I want to say back in the 1980s, perhaps. You and are then, correct. <laughs> and then along the way, another, the Pro Bono Resource Center, which is slightly different focus from Maryland Volunteer Lawyers, trying to coordinate all of the different legal services providers in Maryland that could use volunteer attorneys and train them to be of use to those different legal services. We also are trying, for a while we had an arm of the Maryland State Bar Association called MCPEL, the Maryland Institute for the Continuing Professional Education of Lawyers, mouthful, and it was in operation for about 25 years very successfully, which was surprising because Maryland I don't know if you know this, is one of uh, very few states in the country that doesn't require continuing legal education for members of the bar. But MCPEL went out of business a number of years ago. That notwithstanding, the Bar Association has still historically kept an arm of its operations that's devoted to continuing education. And in the last year, in the first year of the pandemic, for instance, when everything had to go online anyway, The Bar Association made all of its virtual CLE offerings available to every member of the Bar Association for free. So for a year, we had free CLE for the lawyers in Maryland. And what we discovered was, I guess partly because the price was right, but I forget how many thousands of hours of CLE were consumed by Maryland lawyers. So we're continuing to try to offer what we can by way of continuing education for our members, because even though it's not required in Maryland, obviously we all think it's an important thing to do. And that's, you know, part, you mentioned legal education of lawyers. <laughs> so we, we are trying to do all those. The one arm that's probably suffered the most during the pandemic is the one that before the pandemic might've been one of the strongest arms of those goals. And that was the collegiality, cordiality, and although they said brotherhood back then, you know, we'll say collegiality and cordiality, and we won't say sisterhood, but we'll just say whatever, whatever, <laughs> camaraderie, which the Bar Association has always been fantastic at. It's a great way for lawyers to get to know each other and, frankly, to find out what they can do to advance all those other aspects that you already talked about. So, it, yeah, every one of those goals is still a goal of the Maryland Bar Association today. I am wistful for the absence of McPell from my life that as a young lawyer, you know, it didn't matter if I was working on, you know, trying to prevent a foreclosure or you'd pull out the trial judge's bench book or the workers comp by Ted Kornblatt. All of those things were so vitally important. I still have a fair number of them secreted around my office for reference. And and I really wish there was some mechanism to bring it back because it's wonderful to have seminars, but to have something more permanent by way of this is how you approach a permanent total in a Thomas situation or some kind of obscure thing would be a wonderful gift. Well, I too have many of those volumes still on my bookshelves, but I will say that a lot of them 
are still in still available and have been updated and they're available directly from the bar association so you might want to check out their cle offerings and, and publications because a lot of them are really still available thank you i will do so so 125 years a lot of generations of lawyers have come through Despite the aspirations of 1896, there's always been issues. Thurgood Marshall found that he had some difficulty getting into the University of Maryland Law School, that kind of thing. How do you think things have evolved in a positive manner across that time frame? Well, again, as I said, I, when I became president, that is a work still in progress. We have evolved. We've made improvements. We got a long ways to go yet. I was looking back through the old minutes of the Bar Association as part of this, you know, reflection on our history as part of our 125th anniversary and was reminded that it was not until the 1960s that the Maryland State Bar Association admitted its first African-American members. And it was a contested issue, unfortunately, at the annual meeting. Luckily, right prevailed and two African-American members were admitted. Since then, obviously, we've, we've made a lot of strides. We have become far more diverse, not just racially, but ethnically geographically. We're trying now to make sure that the Bar Association is as diverse as possible in all of those respects, and also diverse in the types of practitioners who belong to it. So when I was a young lawyer, a lot of the members of the Maryland State Bar Association were members of large firms, because back then large firms encouraged their young lawyers to become active in the Bar Associations. Over the years that I've been a member, it's swung a little bit more towards solo and small firm practitioners. But what we haven't done yet and has been able to really draw in people like corporate counsels, people who work for the government in various arenas, either as government lawyers in the attorney general's office or for the federal government, for instance, or prosecutors, line prosecutors and public defenders, all of whom usually say that they either don't belong because they don't know what the Bar Association has to offer them, and I can tell them it has lots to offer, or they are concerned about the cost. And all I can say to that is it's about $125, I think might be $150, dues to belong to the Maryland State Bar Association nowadays. It's, I think, the second or third or fourth lowest dues in the country. And that's despite the fact that we're a voluntary bar. You know, some states have mandatory bars. If you want to be admitted, you've got to belong to the Bar Association. Sure. You have to pay whatever dues they are. Maryland's completely voluntary, and we're still one of the lowest. Tie that together with the fact that we don't require CLE, because a lot of those bar associations make money on the CLE. It's amazing, frankly, that we're still one of the lowest. I'm sympathetic, since I have a son who's a government lawyer, to the fact that it's still a lot of money. But what we do now, at least just as of last year, we are including, if you're a member of the Bar Association, access one free section to belong to, which used to cost extra, and short CLEs free to members. So we're trying to make a value package even for you know, the, the government lawyers or the public defenders or the prosecutors and other people who feel like it's maybe not affordable enough. We're working on it. I think that's a very good trend. It's never really held that much allure, for example, for my wife, you know, that there's various federal bar associations and you know, the nuclear lawyers of which she is one have their own little confederation and that kind of, of stuff. Course. And it is a pretty esoteric, you know, area of the law. One of the things I, I've seen from going down to Ocean City for the annual meeting is uh, Small Firm Day has become a big deal. And it really wasn't a thousand years ago when I first joined the Maryland State Bar Association. Yeah. And I think it's fantastic that so many more 
solo and small firm practitioners have joined the Bar Association. And I also think it's wonderful that we're able to offer, as you say, that whole day, especially for them at the Bar Association. It's also a fantastic way to get to know lawyers. Nuclear regulatory might be a really specialized area, but it's a good way for lawyers in different parts of the state to get to know lawyers who practice what they do in a different part of the state so that if they ever need to refer a client to somebody in a different part of the state or vice versa, they know somebody. And I will tell you that to this day, there are younger lawyers, and even in my firm, who will come to me and say, do you know anybody in Garrett County or Wicomico County or wherever who might be able to help with this? And I always do because it's somebody I've met through the Bar Association. So that's the collegiality factor that I hope we can get back to in June when we hope to go back to Ocean City in person. Fingers it is crossed. my aspiration to be there. <laughs> me too. <laughs> we in Prince George's County have a very vibrant Bar Association also. And sometimes that has resulted in less enthusiasm for being part of MSBA than I think is warranted because I do think it has unique benefits. You know, yeah. we all get along great and there is, there's great judicial participation mm-hmm. in this bar. You know, an awful lot of the judges who are on the circuit court and district court now are people I've seen at bar meetings for years, and it does bring them closer to the practitioners. And I think it's hard to be a practitioner, especially in the COVID age. And some amount of empathy from the bench is is an important thing. Yeah, it is. And frankly, I think the empathy could work both ways. I know a couple of judges who wish that some practitioners would be a little more sympathetic to their stresses and pressures. (laughs) Agreed. Again, that's a bit of an offshoot, I think, to the fact that we don't see each other in person. You know, you lose a lot of the human contact when you don't see people in person. Zoom has helped, WebEx hearings and all that sort of thing makes it possible to function, but the functioning is not of the same level. You really can't establish the same kind of relationships over a Zoom call that you can in person. So do you uh, think it's coming back? What? Coming back. The normal day-to-day, I bump into you in the circuit court for Baltimore County or Baltimore City or Prince George's County and say, Natalie, that was a great conversation we had last week. And then I see Judge Kelsey walked by or, you know, something like that. Do you think that kind of thing is going to come back to us? I sincerely hope so. Yes, I think it will to a degree. I think both the judiciary and the lawyers will probably hold on to the possibility of Zoom hearings for some things. I will tell you that as a resident of Baltimore City, whenever I had a case in Montgomery County, I used to like clench my jaw and drive down to Montgomery County for their infamous scheduling conferences where you would simply pick up a written something they could have mailed you, scheduling order. Very Um, valuable, those meetings. Yeah, those were great, weren't they? So that used to be a real, shall we say, less desirable part of practicing law. And that's the kind of thing that I think and hope that the judiciary and the lawyers can continue to use things like Zoom for, for those things where really there's no testimony, there's no persuasion going on. It's just a functionary meeting, which maybe benefits from having people together, but don't need to be physically together. I think, though, that as soon as possible, we will return to jury trials, which, of course, are such a mainstay of our whole legal system that we have to return to that. I mean, it's it's constitutional. We've got to have jury trials and we will have jury trials and we will bump into people in the hallways and hopefully we'll be able to shake hands and do all that sort of thing. I know a number of district court judges. I don't do a lot in the district court these days, but I know the district court has continued to function pretty well through the pandemic until very recently when a large number of the judges and staff have actually come down with Omicron, I understand. They have. But hats off to them. 
because they have continued to function some remote, but for the most part, because so many litigants in the district courts don't have access to things like Zoom and WebEx, they've had to keep their doors open and they've done it and really deserve a lot of credit for doing that. It is your person's work going into the courtroom because they schedule so many cases at once. And I know I don't get into district court much. Actually, my law partner is trying a district court personal injury case this afternoon over Zoom at one o'clock. And I, I, I've done one of those in the last two years and had got a good result, but was mixed on how effective it was. Yeah, I do some administrative work and the Office of Administrative Hearings has been doing all of theirs remotely. And I agree with you. I mean, you, you can try a case or a hearing that way, but I'm not so sure how effective it is. It's got its challenges, to be sure. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that the Bar Association has going on. One of the big emphases since I started doing this show, and I would periodically contact MSBA and say, could you give me somebody, you know, and, and I would name and And Rena Shah has been one of the sort of preeminent guests. She was slated to be on last week, but had a conflict with the legislature and my show. And shockingly, I gave way on that one. But let's talk a little bit about that. Rena and access to justice. And you were talking about how things are more in-house now. And I just wondered yeah. what your appraisal of all of that is and where it's going. I think that has been a fantastic move. Rena, her primary responsibility is to be the director of the Access to Justice Commission. And so, for instance, last year when the pandemic hit and the attorney general indicated a desire to have a task force to talk about the legal problems associated with the pandemic, because most of those legal problems fell heaviest on people of limited means, and, and how was this going to work with access to the courts, which is the most essential part of access to justice. So the RENA, on behalf of the Access to Justice Commission, joined forces with the Attorney General on his task force on how to address these issues. And that task force that he put together and RENA put together, the Access to Justice Commission put together, jointly came up with a number of very useful recommendations to the legislature and to the courts on how to handle the very special problems that were coming up as part of the pandemic. So there were a number of things that were incorporated by the legislature last year into pandemic relief, things like examining the access to counsel in eviction hearings and trials and other remedial measures that addressed largely the whole housing issue that came up with the pandemic. And it's a complicated issue because on the one hand, you had people who either lost their jobs or were sick or had family members who were sick and could not pay their rent. And that's a real human problem, to be sure. On the other hand, you have landlords who are dependent on that rental income to run their business if they're in the business or in the case of individual, what we call mom and pop landlords, really needed that income for their livelihood. So you have two very deserving competing interests and trying to work out how to handle that during a pandemic wasn't easy. Um, no. But that was one of the big things that that task force looked at. And I think made some good and useful recommendations that were acceptable for the most part to both the groups that advocate for tenants in eviction proceedings and housing proceedings generally and the landlord group. And I know that there were task forces that came out of that that the governor appointed this year to work out the details of, of those programs that had both landlords and what they call housing advocates on them so that you know there was a real, it's not truly bipartisan in the partisan sense, but you know a process that brought together all the stakeholders 
and I think arrived at resolutions that were acceptable to everybody. And Rena and the Access to Justice Commission were a real driving force in, in making all of that happen. That's why she's back in the legislature again this year working on things like that. I know that there are a couple of bills implementing those recommendations that are still working their way through the legislature, and that's what she's down there working on. That was kind of where I was going to go with her last week. I wanted to, we discussed all kinds of things and looked at the Access to Justice report, and there's a map that discusses where lawsuits of different natures are filed, and I kind of wanted to see what progress had been made, so I'm going to capture her later in March, perhaps, and see if we Good. can learn a little bit more about Because, you know, it's one thing to have suggestions for things. It's another thing to get actual traction in the legal and legislative community to effectuate change. Well, and this is an area where I think everybody really has worked together the legal services providers, the landlords, the judiciary, and the Bar Association, I think have all worked together really well to make pragmatic adaptations, if you will, to get through this. So let's talk a little bit about the Spark series, which is something that I recently read about and sounds very exciting. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we, as part of our whole look back where we've come from and, and how do we improve going forward, that whole evolution and work in progress that I mentioned a while ago, one of the keys to the where do we go from here? Part of that has been what we call the thought leadership series, which includes a couple of critical addresses that we're going to do. The first of which in our, what we call the spark series was Sherilyn Eiffel, who we had do an interview with Donna Staten a couple of weeks ago that we broadcast both in a zoom, which had I forget how many people. I know we had over 100 people sign up for it. And we had, in fact, we had so many people sign up that we had to make access to a live feed YouTube available too, because not everybody could get in the Zoom room. But they spoke for about a half an hour about the role of lawyers in defending democracy and the responsibility of lawyers to speak up and to actually do things when they see democratic principles being violated. And then we broke into breakout sessions to talk about how that could really go forward. We had everything, suggestions for everything from the Bar Association to holding more programs like that to actual law firm brown bag lunches to talk about issues like this. So that was a fantastic discussion that we're hoping will be a jumping off point for more progress on that front. And then we have the next one coming up, which is coming up on March 15th, I think, Vanita Gupta, who is going to do a program on conversations for the legal profession, looking back and moving forward, we call it, but she's been an associate attorney general with the Department of Justice, and she's coming on March 15th, so next month, and we'll be having a similar discussion on, you know, what can lawyers do to make the whole profession and the legal system more fair, more just, more diverse, more open, and more responsive. So I worry a little bit that sometimes not all members of the legal profession are on the same page. There was a recent president who had some people at his disposal that concerned me. You're never going to get all lawyers on the same page on anything. You know that. And all you can hope for is that in the final analysis, reasonable minds will prevail. But unless all reasonable minds participate, that won't happen. That is a fair point. Well, I regret to say that we have consumed a half an hour, which is the length of this show, and it went by in a flash, and I feel like there's a multitude of other things we could chat about, but I'd like to think I could induce you to come back on sometime. Absolutely, anytime. It's been a delight to be here. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you very much. This has been Everyday Law. 
This is your host, Bob Clark, and his guest, Natalie McSherry, president of the Maryland State Bar Association. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.